chicken? I'll be the chicken. Okay. Who wants uh, a paintbrush? Everybody's got their parking, right? I'll take a paintbrush. All right, how about an envelope? How about a rock? I'll take the rock. $20 bill. Oh, I'll take that one. She's got the serial number memorized, so you can't walk out with it. <laughs> uh, how about a car? Okay. okay. I can play around. How about my business card? I can't even remember oh, like, what hypos these are now. Am I leaving something? Okay. I don't remember. I don't remember why I have that. Now I'm awesome. I might need an envelope. Oh, let's see. I think the envelope. No, I can't remember. I, I have a couple of here. Let me give you those two things. Okay. All right. And a hammer, a kind bar, and another paintbrush. There's oh, enough for two of us. Okay. And kind bar? I'll set that up. All right. Just to keep you oh, awake. Can. He's going to eat it. Uh, you can if you want. I can't exactly. I have these. I have everything kind of planned. Uh, planned for these different hypos. So we're doing that. Oh, Marty needs a. Um, he needs a prop. Oh, yeah, All right. So this is contracts. Sure. Contracts two for hearing officers and mediators. This is contracts two. Yes, Carmen. Oh, we can have a handout. Yes. Handout. Okay. Contracts two for hearing officers and mediators. You should use your handout from last time. Oh, okay. If you don't have one of those, Kim has some in the back. I have um, out. I can go make another. They are. They have the pretty flyer-looking thing on the front. Now, don't bother looking at the answers. Can I this one over. You see, one, two, the same as last Don't time. Don't look at the answers. Yeah, turn the answers over. That's it. Otherwise, it's no fun. Yeah, this is the answers. We'll look at that. That's it. There's two handouts. That's one. I do have more answers. You do? But those will come later. The meaning of life. There's two. I don't have this. Okay, so you need the answers. They go the fun out of it. You don't want them to have the answers yet, do you? Well, I just flip them over. Don't, don't peek. All right, who needs answers? We're gonna, we have, there are 10. This is a, a presentation based on the revised Arizona jury instructions, the RAJI. And we have 10 hypos to go through. We did um, mitigation of damages. We did warranties. And we are going to pick up on number 24, which in your packet should be on page 22. So, all I think all packages. I think in every packet that you're in, old or new, it should be on page 22. So you should be looking at uh, contract 24, Quantum Maryland. We just have yes. a great. So everybody good? Got it. So we have about 10 to go through. We have about a, less than an hour to go through them. So now we'll try to go through them in three, three or three or four minutes for each one. Um, we just got a really good presentation on. And also, I know it's late, and we're tired, and I had to get up and wander around in the last presentation, so if you get up and wander around, it doesn't offend me at all. If you, just, if you sleep, <laughs> I might have a problem. I might actually call on you if you sleep. Um, we just had a good presentation on deontology versus consequentialism, and most of what we learned last time we did this presentation was um, was was deontology, right? It was all rules. And remember, we, we said in contracts, when we're here cases of contracts, don't try to do what's fair and reasonable. You have to follow the law. Well, this quantum merit is a sort of an alternative cause of action or alternative basis for recovery when we don't have a contract. In quantum merit, there is no contract. And we're allowed to use some consequentialism. 
Basically, quantum Merowit is the same as unjust enrichment and is also the same as restitution. So those three ideas are the same idea. And the bottom line is somebody got something for which they haven't paid. There was no contract. They didn't agree to pay for it. But it sh we should not allow them to retain the benefit without paying. So a couple of examples. Unjust it is AKA unjust enrichment. They, it is, they it has three, two aliases. So it is a defendant with two aliases or a cause of action with two aliases. So first one, the church, pa read this, the church pastor, so paintbrush, okay, Geneva. The church pastor asked some of the members to go paint a widow's house as a service project. John, expecting others to help, shows up, but nobody else shows up. He paints the house with paint provided by the church, and then he asks the widow for enough money to have his car repaired, which is far less than the value of the paint job. He wants money. The widow was told by the pastor this was a service project, and she turns him down. John comes to you as a hearing officer and claims that the widow has received a benefit as a result of his services and takes her to small claims court for the value of the improvements made to her property. We talked briefly, I think, at one point today about fair market value, fair market value improvements, that kind of thing. So that's what he's asking for. Look, how do you rule? The Raji says that uh, the plaintiff, that would be him, is entitled to recover the reasonable value of the services rendered to the widow unless either it was understood by them that the services were being rendered free of charge as a gift, a little picture of gift, um, or it is not unfair for her to receive the benefit without paying for them. What do you think? Well, I think I think it was the church that so contracted the, the painter uh -huh. and not the widow. So I would I would say that you're suing the wrong person. Okay. Or entity. Well, the, the church actually was always always planning to do it as a as a service project for the widow. So they they might have contracted, but they didn't contract for any compensation, right? So what we're looking at, what you want to look here, what I always ask myself is, is, was it intended as a gift? Was it intended to be given free of charge? And I think in this one, was it? Yes, from the church I believe it was. Yeah. yeah. From the yeah. Standpoint. What's interesting though is that Raji puts the burden of proof on the defendant, on the widow, to show it was a gift. Um, so that's right. So I don't think he gets any money here. He doesn't get any money here. Now here's a couple of really weird ones, and you're going to look at your at your example here. So there's two examples. This is just a summary. On the, Smith has a huge yard. He is often complaining about the effort it takes to mow it. The teenager living next door needs some fast money and figures, I'll just go over and mow Smith's yard. I can get paid. Smith comes home and finds his yard mowed while he's gone. And now there's a teenager grinning and asking for a measly 20 bucks. I don't have any mowing. I have no mowing uh, uh, props. So I, I got nothing. So I'm sorry about that. Um, does the teenager get paid? No. 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 Why not? <coughs> well, there was no contract, but quantum merit doesn't require a contract. He didn't ask him to go. He just did it on his own. Right. Without. I think this is an example. I think we're given this example as an ex as an opportunity to show the second piece. It's not unfair for Smith to keep the benefit of the mowing without paying for him. Why is it not unfair? 
There was no second party involved. There was no contract. He didn't ask. He didn't get a contract. The teenager just foisted his services on him, right? Okay. I would agree with you. Now, what if Smith watches? What if Smith is like, oh, look at that. There's my neighbor boy out there mowing my lawn, and he doesn't do a thing to stop it. Now what? Don't shake your head. Now that's different. Got to pay him. Yeah, he had an option. Well, he, he had an opportunity to stump it. Well, okay. the plaintiff has to prove that that's what happened, though. Um, you know, I mean, I mean if, if if I was in the corner watching from the corner, the the plaintiff, was, which is the the teenage person, has to prove that I knew about it. He can't just say, "Well, she was there," right? Let's yeah, see. So. I think that's right because the burden of proof under the Raji is only placed on the defendant if um, if it was understood that it was a gift. And so, if it's not a gift, if we're if we're using the second prong that it's not unfair for uh, I mean it's unfair in this case it's unfair for Smith to keep the money because he watched right. So try not to analyze it like Quantum Merrill is asking us. Try not to analyze it under contract or something like that. But your but your instincts are absolutely right that it's not fair for him to watch, watch the benefit happening, and not go out there and fix it. Um, so say, could, could it be the flip coin of mitigating damages from a landlord? You should have mitigated your gain value, your inherent There's a different value. rule for mitigating damages. Raji Contract 23 goes over mitigation, mitigating damages, and there the uh, plaintiff always has a duty to mitigate damages. Landlord or, or other plaintiff, there's always a duty to mitigate. So in this case, he didn't have an obligation to mitigate his enrichment? Um, it's, really, it's really more about, so this is a, this is a, this is a case where we're going to do what's fair and reasonable. Okay. This is the one exception in contracts where we get to step away from the <laughs> rules and we get to do what's fair and reasonable. You get to use your, really your good best judgment, which is it's just really unfair for Smith to have watched it and not pay for it. It's kind of, on, on the other hand, it's not fair for the teenager to go push his services on it and then demand payment. So uh, you guys got that correctly, completely correctly. So those are two, the two, separate options, two separate outcomes on the Smith thing. All right, standardized term. I'm going to go zip it right through these as Judge Barnes would have, because that's what we have to do. Before we go on, just briefly, yeah. could he have agreed to have paid him but not agreed to have given him the $20? He could have just given him something less than that. I'm just okay. saying, if, if the kid thought no. that he... So if we're going to use if we're going to use quantum merit unjust enrichment, and we're stepping away from contract, and we're saying, remember, there is no contract here. Right. You have found there was no meeting of the minds, there was no offer and acceptance and right. consideration, there was none of that stuff. Right. Right. Your damages award is fair market value of the benefit received and retained. Fair market value of the benefit received and retained. FMV means fair market value. Fair market value of the benefit received and retained. <coughs> so if you know, my favorite example is the, the driveway contractors come out and they repave my driveway. They're, they got the wrong house. It's really supposed to be the neighbor's house, and they repaved mine, and I'm sitting in my house going, sweet, this is a good deal, I'm loving this. And then I, you know, I let them finish the whole job. Well, I'm going to have to pay for it, right? But if I only get halfway, they get halfway through and they realize they're at the wrong house, I still got to pay them. You know, for the, ver the value of half the work. Okay. Yeah. So we're no, we're not going to change the amount. The amount is up to you. It's your it's, it's your fact finding a fact as to what's the fair market value. In that case, you were not at home. You just came home after work. He said, "I got a new driveway. Are okay. you under any obligation?" If I come home and it's halfway done, or I got a new driveway and it was done without my 
knowledge or consent. Now I got a mess. That's my favorite. I got a mess. Okay. And you got to figure out what's fair okay. and reasonable. Because it's not the same as I sat there and watched it. Okay. Now it's sort of like, wait, yeah. it might not be fair. Yeah. It's not really fair for me to keep the benefit, but it's also not really fair to make me pay for it. It's difficult to say what okay. would happen there. Good. I, don't, I don't know. That's my, yeah. All right, standardized terms. This is our title loan. I have a couple of title loan things. So Mary has the car. So let's go to, um, well, we're going to do John and Bernice first. But the bottom line here is you're bound by what you sign even if you don't read it. So your plaintiffs or your defendants that say, oh, I didn't read the contract before I signed it. Too bad, so sad. You're stuck with what you, what you um, have signed. There is an exception. There's a two-prong exception. If the plaintiff had reason to believe that the defendant wouldn't have signed the standardized form agreement, if they knew that this particular term was in there, and that in fact the defendants didn't know it was in there, um, then the term is not part of the agreement and the defendant is not bound by it. So let's walk, let's walk through that exception, right? Because normally it's like, doesn't matter if you read it or you didn't read it, you're stuck with it. Okay. Court can refuse to enforce a standardized term like a really high interest rate, right? Like um, John and Bernice in our example here says they'd go to the furniture den and buy a load of furniture. They sign a standard financing form that provides no interest or payments on the purchase price for three years, but when they default on their very first payment, um, they find they now owe three years of interest. And they didn't know that they thought it was an interest-free loan for three years. They didn't know that when they defaulted, all that interest would come due. And they say, I never would have signed that agreement if I'd known it was in the contract. Are they bound by the terms? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This side of the room says, yes, they are bound by the terms. Okay. So they will be bound by the contract, but not the excessive interest. If what? We would have to have one fact in the evidence in order to refuse to enforce that funky interest term. What would we need in the facts? That the originator said, oh, don't worry about it. There's nothing fishy in the contract? Well, the rule here says that the seller had to have reason to know that the defendants wouldn't have signed the contract if they knew the term was in there. Okay. And they're saying we didn't know it was in there. We didn't read it. We would have had to have some fact like like that, and we don't have it in this hypo, so we don't know. But that's what they always say, you know, when we have the title. Well, I didn't know it was 220%. Right. But have you seen the contracts? It's in like big letters and box, and some of them have them in boxes. Uh huh. So, so how do you apply these two prongs of the rule? The plaintiff, the, the seller, had reason to know that they wouldn't have signed the contract if they knew it was in there and that the defendants were, in fact, unaware that the term was in there. When there's a big box, Mary, you just said, well, how do you apply that? Well, I, would, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't. I would, say, I would say it was there, it was boxed, and you signed it. And so you're bound by it. And you can't say you were unaware because you can't avoid this big black thing, large print in the contract. It's right by your signature. It's, <laughs> yeah, that's why the Truth and the Federal Law requires the Truth and Lending Act. Yeah, like in title loans, what they usually do, they put a, a monthly rate in which the the uh, consumers confuse it for a yearly rate. I've had two or three cases because the interest is way above what 
it's legal in what it says in there. And then as well, you know, this is if you're looking at it. Right. It's your monthly rate. It's 15% a month if it's under $500. So what we need is we need a fact to show that the seller had reason to know that the defendants wouldn't have signed the contract if they knew that term was in there. If they really understood it. It's not just what the defendants understood. You're also looking at the, the plaintiff's state of mind. Sure. The, what the plaintiff knew, what the plaintiff understood. So I... I guess it, it's two things, you're kind of looking at both. So this example is a lot clearer. Roger goes to Shady Loan to get to buy a car. He tells the loan agent, I'm concerned about my ability to pay. I need a loan that I can afford and pay off quickly at a reasonable rate of interest. The loan agent says, this form of contract is a standard form used throughout the industry. Roger signs it. He later finds out he's paying 60% interest and can't afford the car. Can we enforce the standard 60% standardized term? against Roger. I would say I would say yes because I'm thinking in that industry a reasonable interest rate could be 60%. Okay, but well that's not our test. Okay. Our test, we're trying to use the Raji as our law as our guide. that we're applying. So you're you're doing what's fair and reasonable. And yeah. I appreciate that. I'm doing the consequential. Yeah, you're being consequential. It's good. The logical now. Yeah. I have a concern here where it says she's alone. Yeah, <laughs> Well, I didn't write this one. So, um, but what's different about this one than the furniture one? What's What fact, what is additional here that we didn't have in the furniture case? Because he was up front that he, he was concerned about his ability to pay, and he says that verbally. Right, and so connect that to plaintiff had reason to know that the defendant wouldn't have signed the contract. But how is that proven though? Well, I mean, by testimony? I guess so. And we then, hear and what it is. believe is incredible. Yeah, in this fact, uh, in this fact pattern, it just says the loan agent, it just says that he, he said he told the loan agent he was concerned about it. And so you're right, we would probably have a loan agent that would come to court and say, I, they never said that. Right. It wasn't discussed at all. So, yeah. I like Roger shopped around and knew what most car loan lenders charge for interest. I think this is your question, Warner. Uh, with poor his poor credit history, if he knew that it was standard in the industry, yeah. then it's really hard to say um, that he was unaware. I think he fails that second prong because because uh, he you know he's aware this is what's probably in there. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of, yeah, this one's, in other words, bottom line is you're bound by what you sign for the most part, but there is an exception. There is a little tiny exception, hard to prove, hard to find the facts to fit it, but you should know about it and, and refer to this if you want to. Okay, back to chickens. <laughs> chickens. All righty. Determining intent of the parties and determining what a contract provision means, you should attempt to determine what the parties intended at the time the contract was formed. Again, it's not for us to be what's fair and reasonable. So um, we have we can look at the language of the written agreement, the acts and statements of the parties before the dispute arose, their negotiations, prior dealings, reasonable expectations, promises or conduct made by any parties, and any other evidence that sheds light on what they intended. In other words, we are not looking at the contract to decide what they really meant. We're looking at what they wanted. So. I have a chicken because it's a famous case where the, um, there was a U.S. corporation that was, I think, selling chickens. And uh, 
Swiss corporation that was buying chickens and commercial case. And basically they said in the, in the case, um, buying and selling chicken, just chicken, that's all it was. Well, the U.S. seller ships, you guessed it, nasty, roasting, stewing, old, two-year-old cake bonds and fowl that was kind of rough and tough and didn't taste very good. And the sell and the buyer immediately sends back a cablegram and says, what is this chicken? This is not what I wanted. I wanted young, fresh, new broilers and fryers that were super tasty and juicy. And they said, the contract says chicken. We sent you chicken. We're good to go. Well, they used a German term for it. That human. H-U-H-N, it's a German term. And so the court had to look at everything to figure out what was the intent of the parties, and finally it kind of gave up. It could have said, you know what, there was no meeting of the minds, chicken, one thing, one, one thing, one people expected the other thing, one other, the other party expected something else, no contract, let's just do it under quantum merit. So the value of those nasty old chickens that were spent, that's what they owe. But the court didn't do that. They looked at the intent of the parties and they figured out what, what they really meant and decided, and you guessed in the U.S. court found in favor of a U.S. seller against a foreign buyer. <laughs> it's possible, but that is what that is what. Um, that's why we have the chicken case. So, gentlemen, Farmer Scott contacts Murphy, the local feed store owner, and wants a quote for how much hay necessary to feed ten cows, and includes the cost of delivering and spreading the hay. The quote is good for Scott. He says, "I approve the delivery," and he says, "I'm going to be gone for two weeks. I'll pay you when I get back." The written agreement simply says delivery and spreading of hay to feed 10 cows per week, 150 bucks. Both parties sign it. On his return, Farmer Scott finds a bill for 300 bucks and says, no way. I only hired you for one week. My brother is going to do the second week. Murphy says, uh-uh. You told me you were leaving for two weeks, and that's what I did. How do you interpret the terms of the agreement? What was their intent? have hay delivered. It's just a matter of time. One, one person was thinking one week, another one was thinking, well, he said two weeks. So that's where the disassociation comes from. Right. Yeah. So here we're going to look at, we're going to bring in all the evidence that the Raji allows us to bring in to figure out what they really intended. We might decide that they had a meeting of the minds only for the one week and no meeting of the minds for the second week and there wasn't a contract. But uh, you could also decide that they had a meeting in the mind that what was what was really their intent was two weeks and that farmer Scott is you know making stuff up at this point I don't it's, it's difficult to say but the point is that you have an ambiguous term and you're going to bring in all the evidence to figure out what they meant was it one week or two well it does say per week if we want to be real technical yeah yeah it says per week so to me that says more, more than, than one week oh i like it okay yeah, so, so you're going to look at the strict at the strict words yeah. and find a way good i love that so if they would have added per week for a period of one week or two weeks then problem it would be much clearer it would yes. be much clearer yeah okay then there's another one and this is called construing the, the document against the drafter and so here we have the, the dollars. Barbara has the 20 bucks. Okay, so she's got her 20 bucks. This is, this is um, when you have an ambiguity and you can't figure out what they meant, like your per week thing, if when all else fails, construe it against the party who wrote the contract. So here's our example, a little complicated. Brandon has a written memorandum of agreement, which is like a letter of intent. 
And the first paper that they sign on November 1st says, the parties have reached an agreement on all aspects of their proposed joint venture that will be formalized in a written contract to be signed by both parties. And both parties sign this memorandum. Brandon goes to his attorney to have the contract drafted. So Brandon's attorney drafts it. He's the party of the first part. And it says the final payment of the party of the first part will be made to the party of the second part no later than 30 days from the date the parties first entered into an agreement. And that, that second thing, second document, was dated January 10th. They both signed that. The party of the second part says to Brandon, I want payment right after November 1, when right after the, um, the first one was signed. Right after the Brandon says, no way. I have 30 days after January 10th to make the payment. So, Mary, I think you hit the nail on the head before. There's an ambiguity, right? There's, there's, so how do you, how do you do it? There's an ambiguity. Do you, everybody see the ambiguity? The unclearness? The final contract. Sorry? Well, it says from the agreement, entered into the agreement. Did they enter the agreement on November 1st? Because they had a memorandum of agreement, right? Right. So if we go by that, then it would be November 1st. Right. 30 days from November 1st. Right. But if we say that, that, that the agreement was not entered until, what was the date? January 10th, was that? Yes. Then it would be from that date. So we would have to determine which one. Right. Yes. And it's not clear because it said the date the parties first entered into an agreement. Yeah. That's the language that we're dealing with. So, and you're dealing with two different dates clearly at this point. Right. right. And let's say we've already done the Raji, we've already done the, looked at all the intent, we've looked at all the parties and everything, trying to figure out what they really meant. When is this payment, when is the payment actually due? You know, uh, it's going to be if in all else fails, you can construe it against the drafter. If you were to if you were to construe it against the drafter of the written agreement, who would win? Second party. Party of the second part. Yeah, party of the second part would win. And Brandon would lose because Brandon had his attorney drafted. And the idea here is that if you've got the opportunity to write to write the document and you don't write it, I think that's why I gave Carmen this pencil, which is a. Tempe Municipal Court pencil, I think it's kind of fun. If you're, the if you're the person writing the agreement, you have the opportunity to write it not unclearly, to, to make it clear and make it good, then you should have done that. So you lose. What is the difference between a memorandum of agreement and a contract? Uh, not too much. A memorandum of agreement is called a letter of intent, and it can be binding as an agreement if it's got sufficient detail. Usually they don't have sufficient detail. It's an agreement to agree. So if it doesn't have sufficient detail to really be enforceable, then it can just be an agreement to agree. It doesn't really work as an agreement. Well, I was thinking that might have some impact on the ultimate answer here because a memorandum of agreement clearly is less than a contract. Usually. And uh, by default, for no better reason, nominal. They're named different. That's a good, that's a good point. So uh, we look at the... So yeah. the terms of a contract is what is generally referred to in business, not the terms of a memorandum of agreement, as in the enforceable element. Well, the problem that we've got is that the second thing says payment is due 30 days from the date the parties first entered into an agreement. So you've got now, that's a different answer. Yeah. yeah. 
that's the problem. We're working with some, some language that would qualify that first memorandum of agreement as yeah, an agreement. Brandon needs a new attorney. Brandon needs a new attorney. Yeah, he should have. Yeah, I wish he had now. Okay, promissory estoppel is like quantum merit. It is another alternative way of, um, of finding cause of action. And I've got a couple of examples on here. I don't really know the best way to teach this, except for that, here's the idea. You don't have a contract, but let's say that, um, let's do the simple one. Um, and I'm gonna give you my diamond ring. Oh, boy. I'm gonna give it to you next Tuesday, right. okay? Uh, I promise. Okay. Okay, contract? No. no. Why not? No exchange of considerations. Exactly, no consideration, no contract. I changed my mind. Ed's out of my, he's out of luck. This weekend, he says, Tycoff's giving me that, that diamond ring. Sweetness, right? I am going to hawk that thing and go buy, I don't know, like tickets to, you know, some good game. Some, I don't know what you do. Yeah. A little wine, a little whiskey. A little wine, a little whiskey. I'm going to have a great weekend. And so he doesn't have the money for the tickets or this wine and whiskey plan, uh, but he just goes and gets a little loan because he knows on Tuesday he's going to get my ring. Okay. I change my mind, I renege, and Tuesday I say, so sad, so sorry, change my mind, Ed, and I'm giving you the ring. I'm used to it. And he says, <laughs> and he says I'm suing you for the, you know, whatever, $1,000 that I uh, spent, uh, took that little loan for, because I was counting on the, on the ring, counting on it. Does he win? Warner says no. He doesn't win. Promissory Stoppel would agree with you. It says, did I make a promise? Yes, I did. Uh, was it reasonably foreseeable to me that you would rely on the promise? No. It, did you justifiably rely on my promise? No. Because we know it could change my mind. We knew there was no contract. Did you incur a loss as a result of relying on my promise? Oh. Well, no, you did. Yeah. yeah, you totally did. But it wasn't reasonable. And so these hypos, which we're probably not going to have a chance to go over, these hypos uh, show that um, when, it, when you unreasonably rely on something, you don't, get, you don't win. Let's do this one. I like this car one. Donald says to Marie, I don't know why it says a woman mechanic. I kind of, I don't, I don't know why it says, it's just a mechanic. Um, my car needs some repairs, including a new motor. When can you take the car? Marie says, next Friday I can take your car. Donald says, good. Car owner. I promise that I will bring it into your shop next week for the needed repairs. Contract? No. no. Good. He goes to a, no, no consideration, right? He goes to another shop for the work. Wait, Mary, in anticipation of making the repairs, bought a new engine for the car. Can she sue Donald for the, for the engine that she bought? There's no contract, there's no agreement, there's no consideration, but she says promissory estoppel, I relied on it, I was reasonably foreseeable that I would rely on this promise. I don't, I don't think that she's going to get the money unless she can prove that it's reasonable for her to rely on her conversation. I don't... I don't think that she's got it here. I don't think it's reasonable. She's, she needs a little bit more. I don't know what that would be. But she can return the engine. She can return the engine, yeah. And even if she sues Donald, she has to mitigate her damages and sell that engine somewhere. Yeah, you 
guys know that. If that had been like their second or third conversation where he had verified delivery of the car on Friday, then she could have said, well, you're going to want me to start it on Friday. I have to have the parts Thursday night. Right. I like your thinking, Warner, and I think the fact that I'm looking for is that she says to him, I'm going to go ahead and order the engine. And he says, okay, I'll bring it Friday. Friday. Now we've got reasonable reliance. Now it's reasonably yes. foreseeable to Donald that she expended the money. Now she might be able to sue him for the cost of the engine uh, minus any amount she could get on resale. Right. Good job. Good job. Okay, impracticability, commercial frustration, the act of God, the lightning bolt that comes down. Um, party is excused from performing the contract if their performance is impossible or impracticable. Impracticable means extreme and unreasonable difficulty, expense, injury, or loss. Now, a couple of ideas of uh, hypos here. President's coming to Seattle. The parade's going to take place. Um, Hotel Paradise is renting rooms for $1,000 a day. Normal room rent is $89 a day. Sarah and Margaret have rented a room for the parade and prepaid a rental fee, and the parade is canceled. For, let's do the easy one, a driving wind and torrential rainstorm. Do they get their money back? Why? It's an act of God. Beyond anybody's control, yeah. Okay. So the weather may or may not be foreseeable. Sometimes the contract will have a rain contingency. But if the event is, yeah, if the events are unforeseeable, if these two events, I think, are the terrorist attack is maybe a less foreseeable than a driving wind and torrential rainstorm, especially in Seattle. But act of God, possibly. If it's a foreseeable event, um, reasonably foreseeable event, then they don't get their money back. Let's do the boulder. Boulder's a little easier. So, Warner's got the boulder. It's a rock. So that we're coming off in my bag. I don't know why. <laughs> but Gordon is going to build a house for, for Marie. The contract includes a basement. When he starts to excavate, he runs into a huge boulder. He, it's going to cost him $20,000 additional expense in completing the contract. First, let's just say that he um, he just stops there. Before don't don't do the second paragraph yet. Gordon contract to build this house, build a basement, finds a boulder, and says, "Oh, going to cost me twenty thousand dollars additional to complete the contract." And he stops work. If they don't know anything about boulders, if boulders are not, if this is a big surprise to everybody. Can he get out of the contract? Probably yes. Okay. Can she get out of the contract? Okay. Probably yes. So. Yeah, because they didn't take that into yeah. It's this is impracticability. It's impracticable for them to continue with the contract. She could also demand. He could also demand more money, right? And she could agree to the more money, and that would be a modification, and it would be enforceable if they both agreed. But they don't agree. They can both get out of the contract. I agree. But if he knew that this neighborhood had boulders, and he knew that the last one discovered was two blocks away from this site, and before he began work, he looked out, looked around, and he decided to go for it anyway, and then he finds the boulder, now what? He's liable for that. Now he's liable. Now he's investigated, and he's assumed the risk, so he is going to have to perform. And if he doesn't perform, then she wins damages. Good. Perfect. All right. On the first example, would she be liable for the work that he had already done and he could be Oh, you're so smart. Or am, I, or am I jumping the page? No, you're not. 
No, I don't think you're jumping the page. You just connected the idea that in the Boulder situation, when it was unforeseeable, we said, okay, unforeseeable event, act of God, part, no contract, everybody gets to walk Stop away. Stop everything. Stop everything, everybody gets to walk away, nobody has to perform. But wait, Gordon has already done some work. Gordon's already done some work. Did he expect to get paid for it? Unjust enrichment, right? He expected to get paid for that work. And so when he's, so is it fair for Marie to keep his partial performance without paying for it? No. So we're going to award her how much? Whatever the true costs up to that point, yeah. Fair market value of what he's done so far. Good. So you want both parties to be sort of made whole at that point. He gets up to a point. That's what I said. He gets paid right. for yeah, what he did, and she gets paid for what she was enriched. She doesn't get paid. She doesn't get paid. No, she pays. She's paid him. Yeah. Yeah. You have to make him. You have to make it right. Yeah. Okay. You have to yeah. make it right between you. If she's made some partial payments, and then he's yeah. done some work. You got to make that right. Okay. Gunpoint. <laughs> By the widget, we always have contracts for widgets in contract widgets. law. I don't know why. But, uh, okay, duress. Duress is a wrongful act or wrongful threat by a person that induces another person to enter into a contract they wouldn't have entered into without the duress. It is duress if the act or threat placed the person in such fear that his free will and judgment were overcome. If, it, if we have duress, then the contract is unenforceable. So, and that's hard to read. Okay, you have to read it down here. So Big Tony, I didn't write this, Big Tony likes Luigi's house. Big Tony says to Luigi, I want to buy your house and I will good, give you a good price. Luigi says, no way. Big Tony says, Luigi, you need to contemplate what it feels like to be in good health. We don't have gunpoint, but we have what? Threat. A threat. <laughs> Luigi signs the sales contract. Just before the closing of the sale, Luigi changes his mind and refuses to sell. Big Tony can't find any muscles, so he sues on the contract. Who wins? Luigi, because he signed a contract under duress, the contract is unenforceable. I think that I would like a little stronger facts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would love then just this statement, but, uh, but I think the idea is that we're supposed to be looking at that as a potential duress. Now, here's one that I think is different. Dan goes to Gertrude and says, Gertrude is way behind in her mortgage payments. She, uh, she's hoping for a deal to come through in three months. Dan goes to her and says, you know, you're going to lose this place and your credit will be ruined. You know, you're going to get foreclosed on. Oh, it's going to ruin your credit. This is going to be a big problem for you. You better sell to me or you're going to be in bad shape. You have no, really no alternative. Some of you are smiling. Yeah, okay. Is this duress? No. no. Okay, why not? He's only articulating things that are actually already out there. He's not introducing a threat that he's creating. Well, he's not creating the threat. You're right about that. But this thing doesn't, um, I'm not sure. I like that idea. But I, I, there's another piece of it that I want to tease out, too. She's created her own duress. Well, that's true. She's, but, already, she's already in that duress. But if you said, you better sell to me. Or you really have Or I'm, yeah. I'm going to hurt you. Well, he doesn't, no, he's not saying that. that. part of it. I don't, I don't think her free will and her judgment are overcome. No, right? but he's bullying her. That's right. So isn't that, wouldn't that produce duress? Well, the traditional idea of duress is you need to have a physical threat or a threat of physical harm. What we have in Gertrude is we have economic duress. We have economic pressure. We have someone who's behind and who's feeling some, some panicking, perhaps. 
Um, we are in the law moving more, Barbara, to that idea that we're going to allow economic duress as a defense to a contract and make it unenforceable. But it is it is a lot weaker than physical duress. Yeah. So I would probably rule that this isn't only financial, this is a weaker case. I think she's more likely to be bound to, for, to perform this contract because she has alternatives. That's what we ask in economic duress is could you go get a loan? Could she do something else? Could she borrow something on it? I mean, does she have any other, she has other people she could sell to, too. Could she, you know, ask her family for money? Okay, let's see, we've got uh, options. So. going to do here. Okay, this is this one's funny. So an option, a valid option has to have separate consideration. It's a separate and enforceable contract. Otherwise, it's revocable. We learned that last time. So Harry says to Gordon, I don't have the money right now, but I will in 60 days. Will you promise me that you will not sell your home to anyone else before I get the money? And Harry says, I promise. Enforceable? No. 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 Why not? It's not a contract, it's a promise. Okay. Well, promise, con contract is promise for a promise. There's no consideration here, right? Nothing's, no money's been exchanged. Now, in exchange, in, in, in contrast, if Moore goes to Smitty and says, I'll pay you 10% more than the appraisal price on your home if you give me a 60-day option to buy your property, Smitty agrees and then reneges, now what? Now there's, there's a contract because it's yeah, consideration. That's okay. consideration. And where's the consideration? 10% extra. Perfect. The 10% extra is the consideration. I think that's right. Except I think they're going to sue in Superior Court because uh, they're going to see for specific performance. Laura gives her landlord written notice of intent to renew her lease 31 days before the end of the lease. The lease says the option has to be exercised on 30 days notice at, quote, an amount of rent to be agreed upon. They end up later, they can't agree on the rent. Can, Laura, can the court set a reasonable amount? Did she exercise the option in a timely fashion? She did. She did. Okay. Well, she had one day before. Yeah. She did the 30 days notice. So she, she exercised the option timely. What's the problem here? There's no agreement in the amount. There's no meeting of the minds. There's no meeting of the minds. And so the court, can the court put their own idea in there? No. No. Good. No. Court cannot. Okay. When you exercise an option, this is different than um, most law that I've ever taught. So here in Arizona, when you exercise an option, um, you usually have to exercise it just like the option says. Like if it's certified mail, it has to be certified mail. That's why I handed out, you know, envelopes and different types of delivery. But Arizona says that the plaintiff is not required to use the exact method of giving notice as long as the method used was effective to communicate the notice to the defendant. Wow. So let's do some hypos. Reggie gives Marilyn a valid option to purchase his property. It says Marilyn must, should exercise the option by telegram before November 1st. Instead, she writes and sends a certified letter exercising the option. Reggie receives it before the due date. He says telegram, she sends certified letter. He gets it, she gets it timely. Who wins? You said in Arizona the, they have the option, but you send it a different way. Right. As long as it effectively communicates. Well, Marilyn would, would, would win. Marilyn would win. Yeah. 
Okay, Reggie gives Marilyn, that's right. Marilyn gives Mar Reggie gives Marilyn a valid option to purchase property. It says, um, notice of exercising the option has to be only in writing on or before November 1st. She procrastinates, but the last minute she telephones Reggie and says, I'm giving you formal notice that I'm exercising the option. Reggie says, no way. You didn't do what you're supposed to do. It's not in writing. Right. You see, because it's it was it's strict he would require strict compliance. But what about this last piece? It was was it effective communication, a verbal conversation on the phone normally is. Yeah. I think under the Raji, uh, her phone call is effective to notify Reggie of her exercise of the option. So that's why I think this is a, this is a trigger. This is a surpriser here, and not what I would have expected. But Reggie can't go to court with that promise. It's going to be a verbal he said, she said, and that's why he required written. And he didn't get that. And I think it has to be observed that the written notice had greater value uh, because of its objectivity. Well, I think if you, um, if you want to say that it didn't effectively communicate. I, I mean, didn't say effectively. Okay. I said he lacks an enforceable uh, piece of evidence that court would stand up, whereas a telephone conversation is a verbal. Yeah. And he therefore lacked something that was supposed to be part of the uh, exchange. What if she recorded it? That might be useful. Brings, yeah. brings the audio or video recording in. I'm thing. good with that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Reggie says in the option, your answer must be, this is example three, your answer must be received by me on or before the last day of the option. She mails a letter one day before the last day to exercise the option. Did she do it right? Nope. No. Why not? Received by. Yeah. Good. It, that is not timely. And so she loses on number three. So I think she wins one and two. I think she loses three. On the certified, the example one, on the certified letter, okay, does there need to be some sort of proof of delivery or acceptance by Reggie? You know, she did it correctly, but now he's saying, nope, I never got it. You know. So I think that's what Bill's kind of pointing out is that these people are going to come in and one's going to say, I sent it, and one's going to say, I never received it, right? But I sent it certified. I've right. got my receipt from the post office. Right. But do you have your green card? It, it may, it may have been, it may been lost in, yeah, in the mud pile. We, yes. I had to send something certified this last week, and I was in the post office going, I want the green card. You understand? <laughs> I'm in court all the time. I need that green card. I can't do anything. She's like, yes, ma'am, here's the yeah. green card. <laughs> So that's really a matter of proof. And so really what the Raji is having us focus on is did the notice, let's assume that she proves that she sent it um, and that you feel that it's credible, did it effectively communicate did it? satisfy it? that, yeah. yes. And you know, if he knew, if she knew that he was out of town for two weeks and he didn't pick up his mail for two weeks and he was in Seattle, I mean, you know, at some point we could say there was no effective communication. Okay, we're going to do lease termination and we're going to do mitigation of, of damages, and we're going to be on time. Uh, okay, contact thirty-three. This says a lease. Can, so we have two Rajis on leases, three maybe here. A lease can be terminated before it expires by an agreement of the parties or by conduct of the parties, which implies that they both agree the termination of the lease, the party alleging termination has the burden of proving the lease has been terminated. So this is weird, another weird one, because it says that normally, when does a lease expire? Date of expiration, yeah. the date that it actually ends. But here we can look at behavior. 
if they both, that implies that they both agree to terminate the lease. So, Bertie tells her landlord that she has to move closer to her daughter and she vacates the apartment. Bertie and the landlord, Honey, have been good friends for a long time. Six months after Bertie leaves, Honey sues her for breach of the lease. How will you rule? Did she mitigate the uh, loss? We're going to get to that on, con on Raji 35. That's a great question, but we won't do that just yet. Did she give her a 30-day notice? We don't uh, know. She just, they're just good friends, and she told her I had to leave. I had to move close to my daughter, and she left. They both knew she was vacating the premises at that point. And so? so Lisa's terminated. Yeah. It was by the, by the conduct of the parties. That is what the Raji is trying to show us, is that the parties reasonably conducted themselves in a way that showed that both agreed to terminate the lease early. So, I mean, this is a surpriser because I would normally enforce the informal ending of the lease. But this one is telling us that a lease can be terminated before it expires, either by express agreement or by conduct. So, kind of a surprise. There is this Raji on 34 that's for on commercial leases. We don't get commercial leases in our courts, do you? No, I've never seen one. No, I don't think we, I don't think they ever. To vacate? To move Somebody out? Is that what you're talking about? Um, this is damages for breach of a commercial lease. I don't. I don't did get them, but not frequently. But it would, it would be an, evic an eviction and not a small claim. Unless, commercial, the, unless the amount would be under the, the statutory limit. Don't know. think that commercial leases ever come. Oh, oh maybe this is damages. Yeah, damages. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we do, but it's very rare. And that there is a statute. We follow that statute. That, yeah, commercial leases really they can just lock everything in lock. and keep all that stuff and blah blah blah. Yeah, I did not do that one. I did not prepare that one because I figured we didn't get it. I didn't want to find your packet. Yeah. Okay, let's do the last one. Contract 35, mitigation of damages for few past rent. We were talking about did the landlord mitigate your damages? This is there's a great set of hypos here, and filling out my business card, which is I think I gave it to you for a reason. The kind bar was supposed to be for the cows. That was that was about <laughs> the cows and the hay. I was like, I'm searching for anything to connect to the cows and the hay. But. Okay, the landlord may not recover any damages that could have been avoided through reasonable efforts to find a new tenant. If the landlord fails to make reasonable efforts to find a new tenant, the damages for for past rent okay must be reduced by the amount the landlord could have avoided through reasonable efforts. Okay, so the landlord's waited to sue. So let's say the lease ended and then the landlord waits eight months to sue, and now the landlord's saying, well, I need all eight months of this rent, and you would reduce that. Um, puts the burden on the tenant to prove the landlord didn't make reasonable efforts to find a new tenant. If they had acted reasonably, they would have gotten a new tenant and the amount of damages that they could have avoided through reasonable efforts. So interesting the tenant has burden proof there. Wow. Yeah. So how would the tenant go about proving yeah. um, Usually what they say is what? It was rented the very next day. I saw it was rented. I, I drove by. There was people in there living, you know, or the apartment didn't stay vacant. You know, took a picture. People are living there. They, if it's an apartment, it's easy because it's standard rent, you know, not if it's a house or something like that. But apartment would have to. Okay, so Muriel breaches the lease by leaving. Before she leaves, she gives the landlord a business card of her friend. And she said, this is a person, here's the name and phone number of a person who's willing to take over the lease. The landlord doesn't call a person and just puts an ad in the paper. It takes the landlord four months to rent the property at two-thirds of the amount rent of the amount of rent paid by Muriel. What should Muriel do when the landlord sues her for the four months of rent? 
It would have been an immediate remedy if the landlord had just called the person on the car. Yeah. So did the landlord mitigate their damages? No. 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 Not reasonable. Did not make reasonable efforts to find a new tenant. Now, let's put a pin in that because I've got a counter argument, right? What's the counter argument? Well, they didn't want to rent to this person. Right. How do we know they're a savory person? Yeah. How do we know that they can say, Bad well, I don't like Muriel, and Muriel's friends are not anybody I would care about, so I don't want this person. So I think that's that would be a reasonable counter argument to that. How, what amount is she, how much rent is she responsible for? That's to be proven at trial. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, let's say we're at trial. So let's say she's got, for the Raji, she's got the responsibility to prove, as Geneva says, she's got the responsibility to prove, you know, it could have been rented to my friend. My friend would have paid the same amount I was paying. The fact that it was rented to somebody else for two-thirds, you know, and, it's, and it sat, sat for four months. So my person would have come right in. So she's going to say, I don't owe the four months, and then I don't owe the one-third of the rest of the lease either because, right, my guy would have paid all of it. All right, next one. Does a landlord have a duty to call a person? We talked about that. Well, not if they have a good reason for not calling them. And this is our last typo. Muriel breaches the lease by leaving. She gives the landlord the name and phone number of that person. The person calls and leaves a message for the landlord. The landlord doesn't return the call, and the next day rents the property to his <coughs> nephew for half the rent paid by Muriel. Now what? Now, he, he did not mitigate his, his losses, so he's, he's not entitled to anything. That was her he's whole. She, yes, she's the one that, that decided to just charge half the rent. Right, so she's going to get, landlord's going to get zero damages yeah. here. That's exactly what, what the answers say, and I think that's what you guys are saying as well. Um, yeah. Okay, we made it. You get it. Sweet. Thank you, Rose. All right. So, uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm not going to touch that. I'll let Kim figure out how to turn that off. All right, good job. Now, look over and look at your answers. And you're welcome to keep both packets if you want to. But I'm going to take this $20.